0: Henrik is the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am really thrilled to welcome Dean James to the podcast today. Dean James is the New York Times and USA bestselling author of the Katniss Stacks Mysteries under the name Miranda James. By day, he's a mild-mannered medical librarian. By night and on weekends, he's a serial killer who gleefully dispatches obnoxious characters so his sleuths, Charlie Harrison Diesel, can have fun solving murders. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Well, Julie, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Oh, I'm so looking forward to this conversation because you've had such an interesting career. Um, But let's start at the very beginning, as I like to do on this podcast. When did you um, say to yourself, I want to write a book, especially a fiction book? You wrote nonfiction at the beginning, and I want to talk about that. But when did you say, I want to write a mystery?
1: I was 12. Yeah, I was deeply enamored of uh, Nancy Drew. It was still one of my all-time favorite characters. And Trixie Belden, another uh, (laughs) girl sleuth. Uh, Trixie lived on a farm, like I did, except she was in uh, New York and I was in Mississippi. And of course, Nancy was an only child like me. But uh, I just love the fact that they had adventures and stuff, and I just became fascinated by mystery. So I decided, you know, it took me a while to figure out, you know, people actually sit down and write these books. They don't just magically appear. So I thought maybe I can do that, and so I wrote a very bad knockoff of you know sort of a combination of Nancy Drew and Trixie Belden, um, you know, a, a girl who was an only child who lived on a farm, and there was missing Civil War gold and you know stuff like that. And I actually wrote it. It was basically a, a long short story. I don't think it was even quite a novella, but one of my aunts had a typewriter and she typed it up for me. And I sent it to the publisher of the Trixie Belden books, which was the Whitman company. And, um, I got back a badly mimeographed, uh, rejection letter, <laughs> which just sort of dampened my spirits as you know, as a 12 year old, I didn't know how to handle rejection. So I put those, uh, writing dreams on hold until I was in graduate school quite a few, many years later. And, uh, that's when I really wanted to become a published writer. I was in graduate school to get a PhD in history. And, uh, and I tell people there's really no corollary between my being in graduate school and wanting to murder people, but you know, <laughs> uh, you take it for what it is, you know. But uh, I wrote <laughs> uh, my first adult mystery, I think some, probably the summer of 1985. And by then I'd begun working at Murder by the Book in Houston, uh, where I worked for 30 years. And um, I had met um, a couple of people in the mystery community, um, including uh, Suzanne Kirk, who was the longtime editor at Scribner. I'd met her at a mystery conference in Houston. And so I sent it to her. And she wrote back that she enjoyed the characters and settings and stuff, but it just wasn't quite what they were looking for. So, you know, I put that on hold because I had to finish my PhD and stuff, but I didn't give up. You know, wanting to write, uh, but uh, as you mentioned, I was published in nonfiction uh, before I managed to sell any fiction. So uh, the nonfiction was my entree to New York publishing.
0: But let's talk about the the evolution of you as a writer. So you're you're in graduate school, getting PhD, which I I can't even imagine the work um, mm-hmm. and and the the switching of the brain to go into fiction. Um, did you, as you were thinking and, and working on uh, your novels, did you, or or establishing yourself as a mystery writer, did you take craft classes? I, I, I love that you worked at a mystery bookstore. You went to conferences early. So, I mean, you were getting part of the community and, and doing all that. But how did you build your craft as a mystery writer?
1: Well, a um, couple of things. Uh, for one thing, the... You know, the reading and the kind of work I had to do, you know, to get a PhD in history, um, it helped me develop, you know, my sense of logicalness. I'm not sure that's the word, but um, anyway, uh, and I'm a very linear thinker, I think partly because of the training in history, because you have to look at things and analyze them to see how they're put together, you know, to come up with your interpretation of, of a set of facts or what have you. Um, and I never, I never, other than that creative writing course in high school, uh, that's the only writing class I've ever taken, except for, uh, I did take Mary Blunt Christian's, uh, class, uh, in Houston on writing for children. Uh, she was the author of Sebastian Super Sleuth Mysteries, which were adorable mysteries for kids. So she was a very good teacher. Uh, but that, that's the only formal instruction, um, I had basically I learned from reading. You know, and I think, and I, you know, I'm not going to diss writing classes because I know they they work for some people, but for me, the apprenticeship was reading hundreds and hundreds and thousands of mysteries and absorbing that structure. You know, because I'm, I'm one of those people who doesn't really plot out in advance, but I think, you know, the structure of a mystery is sort of deeply ingrained in my consciousness now after having read, oh, I've been keeping a reading list since May of 1984. And that doesn't count all the books I've read since then. And and since 1984, I've read almost 5,000 books.
0: Wow! Yeah,
1: I mean, mean, part of that, the numbers jumped up really quickly when we were writing by a woman's hand because I was reading a book every day. (laughs) Yeah. So that pumped up the numbers, but still. But you know, if you read the really good stuff, and then you read Mm -hmm. some of the bad stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, and if you can learn to tell the difference, what makes Mm -hmm. the good one good and what makes the bad one bad, then you know. There you have it. And plus, you know, my books are kind of modeled on the old-fashioned you know, Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, Audrey mm-hmm. Allingham, those kinds of books, with influences from more contemporary writers like the late Barbara Mertz, uh, aka Elizabeth mm-hmm. Peters, Barbara Michaels, who was, you know, one of the my very favorite writers in the world and favorite people too. You know, so I, I just, I think all those influences I sort of, you know, Snuck into my brain somehow. And, uh, you know, plus I've always been, you know, an a, an a student in English. So I learned my grammar early on. I had great teachers in junior high and high school who pounded grammar and sentence structure into my head. And then I took Latin, which is even better for learning sentence structure. So I just, I think those classes, that foundation was really what I think made a difference for me.
0: Play, I love, um, I'm also a Barbara Mertz fan, though I never got to meet um, her, unfortunately. I'm um, but I'm, you know, I'm a, a huge, you know, I'm re-listening to Amelia Peabody. That's what I do in the summer. Um, but I, when I, when you were learning and reading, I mean, when you're reading 5,000 books, you're reading all Types of genre, the subgenre, you know, were they all? In, you know, I'm sure they're not all crime novels. But um, what drew you to the crime novel genre? I mean, Trixie and, and Nancy were your gateway drugs. But you know, what made you say that this is the genre I want to write in?
1: You know, I never assumed I'd write anything really different because I loved mystery so much. Because I graduated from. You know, the, all the, the kid detectives, you know, I read the Hardy Boys and Nancy, I mean, uh, Judy Bolton and the Dana Girls and uh, some of the other boy detectives and things. You know, I still have a huge collection of them, you know, because I kept all my Nancy Drew books and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I graduated from there. One of my aunts belonged to uh, the book club. This is back in the late 60s, early 70s. And she had a book by Victoria Holt called The Shivering Sands. And I borrowed that, and I just found it compelling, you know. And so then I wanted to find more Victoria Holt books. And so I was off on a romantic suspense uh, kind of jaunt. Uh, and that's during that phase was when I discovered Barbara's books. she mm-hmm. quickly became a favorite. And, of course, back then it was a deeply guarded secret that Barbara Michaels and Elizabeth Peters were the same person. Right. And, it, right. and finally, at one point... Um, one of the books that was published and it says, you know, Barbara Mertz is really both these people. And it was like, oh, you know, it kind of clicked. It made sense. But yeah. the Elizabeth Peters books were funny and faster paced and more mystery. Whereas the, the Barbara Mertz books were kind of spooky and and it yeah. had more of the Gothic elements and stuff. But uh, and from then, you know, later on as a teenager, I read and then there were none. Mm-hmm. It's my first Christie book, and it scared the Jesus out of me. Yeah. You know, when I got to the end, and, you know, I, I was like 15, I think, or 16, and it just blew me away. Yeah. And so then I, you yeah. know, then I read, you know, the, started reading Agatha Christie, and that's about the time uh, Sue Grafton published AIDS for mm-hmm. Alibi. I discovered her and Marsha Muller and Sarah Paretsky. And I, and I don't know, I've always been drawn more to women detectives for some reason. I guess because of Nancy Drew, mm-hmm. I thought, you know, you know, the plucky heroin kind of thing. But uh, because, you know, I read the Hardy Boys, but I didn't identify with him because I grew up on a farm and an only child. And I didn't have a brother. We didn't have motorcycles to ride. We didn't get to ride speedboats, that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I just felt I had more in common with with those girl detectives, you know. So, but it's, you know, that's sort of the progression. And then when I moved to, uh, to Houston in 1981 to go to grad school, I discovered Murder by the Book which was very close mm-hmm. to campus. And it had been open a year. And then that and Martha Farrington, you know, who is now one of the dearest people in the world to me, who owned it for so many years, uh, she'd say, Well, have you tried so and so? Have you tried so and so? And we had very similar tastes. And so she introduced me to people like Ruth Rendell and PD James and, you know, so many others. And I read, you know, I had very Catholic taste for a long time. Um, in recent years, I kind of narrowed that down because I just don't like reading a lot of graphic violence anymore. You know? mm-hmm. So I don't read, you know, some of the thrillers anymore. But I mean, I, James Lee Burke is an amazing, amazing writer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Brilliant. But I can't do the violence anymore. You know, I just yeah. can't. And so uh, as much as I respect him, I just can't read it anymore. You know? So, uh, but, but that's, that's how, you know. And, you know, and I, I read, i read you know, thrillers, I read espionage, you know, I read a little bit of everything. I don't read horror at all. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I, I developed a very good sense, I think, um, of the breadth and depth of the genre. Plus, I taught classes on the history of mysteries um, at the uh, at the School of Continuing Studies at Rise for several years. I'm talking about the history of the wow. genre. I focused a lot on women writers since by that point... Uh, my friend Jean and I had written, you know, the, the By Woman's Hand, the two editions and killer books and stuff. So I, I really sort of educated myself. You know, I'm a historian. I was interested. OK, where did all this come from?
0: Yeah. yeah. Tell me about the the nonfiction books that you wrote with your friend Jean.
1: Well, um, Jean was a librarian at uh, the Texas Medical Center Library and her husband was uh, the uh, Assistant head librarian at Rice University, and they were customers at the bookstore, which is how I first met them. And eventually, I actually went to work for Jean at the library when I had to get a full-time job. But um, we were talking about it, and you know, we were both very well aware. uh, This is in the late '80s, early '90s, that you know there was a real growth in uh, women mysteries, Um, Mm -hmm. mysteries written by women. But uh, there just wasn't much of a, you know, critical look at them. You know, Mm -hmm. men got most of the reviews. In fact, for one of my projects in library school, I did an analysis of reviews and publishers weekly by by gender, you know, for the mystery thriller genre. You know, and the the proof was overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It was true. As Sarah, our revered founder of Sisters in Crime, you know, stated, women just were not getting the attention. So Gina and I thought about, why don't we write a book about women writers and try to bring some sort of sense of, you know, their importance to readers. And then we came up with the idea of By a Woman's Hand. And I happened to mention the idea. We didn't have an agent or anything, but I mentioned the idea to a sales rep who called on Murder by the Book. He was a sales rep for Berkeley. And he thought it was a cool idea. So he said, look, I'm going to sales conference in a couple of weeks. Let me take it there and see what happens and he presented it to natalie rosenstein who was uh the guru for mysteries and everything at berkeley and Jove.
0: Mm-hmm. and natalie
1: loved the idea so uh we signed a contract and had an option on another book and uh so we wrote my woman's hand and they basically what we did was give sort of a pricey about the author and that author's characters And at the end, we said, like, if you like Sue Grafton, you might like these writers, you know, to help people explore the genre further. And I think we wrote about about 250 writers and we focused on contemporary writers because the focus was, you know, this new fluorescence of women writers writing about women Mm -hmm. characters. And uh, so we focused on on those writers. We didn't do Agatha Christie. We didn't do Dorothy Sayers. We didn't do you know, the older writers, because we really wanted the focus to be on the new wave of contemporary writers, and wow. it was it was hard work, because, we, you know, we had to finish it in a year, and we hadn't done a huge amount of work before, because we weren't sure if it would sell, so then we had to put the pedal to the metal, and we were each reading a book a day, just about every other day, but wow. fortunately, mysteries are short, <laughs> except for Elizabeth George, um, you know, uh, God bless her, but, um, uh, uh, So so we managed and, you know, there there were just so many cool mysteries who, you know, eventually there was a downturn in the market and a lot of writers got dropped as it happens every Mm -hmm. few years. It's a cycle. And uh, there were so many really cool writers with cool series and stuff. It was great fun reading these people, you know, and I I regret that some of them, you know, couldn't hang on because their series were so much fun, you know, But, but that's how we got started. And then a couple of years later, we did an update because there were even more writers. So we added those. And then by that time, the waves had begun to, to pass a little bit. And, but we did write uh, killer books, which included both male and female writers and older and newer writers. And we also did a Dick Francis companion. So, yes, you know, so that was our entree. And in, in the middle of that, um, you know, I managed to sell uh, start to sell
0: fiction as well. And what was your fiction evolution uh you know like how did you did you know because you, you've written a few different series and uh-huh. and you know I mean you have uh, your your Charlie and Diesel series is is uh going strong with the new book coming out in July but, this but July, did, next July, next July. Yeah. how did the um how did the that how did how did you uh how did you segue into fiction? Did you, you know, how did you decide to to, to do this and have success at it? I mean, you know, you've been writing fiction for a week and having ideas, but, you know, it's a, it's a well, different thing to yeah. sort of find the magic combination well, that somebody buys. As I tell people, in,
1: in terms of fiction, I was a 25-year overnight success. <laughs> you know, because it was about 25 years between my writing that first adult mystery and actually selling a book. Uh, and it was a version of that uh, original book because it was set at, at graduate school and my heroine was a heroine, not a hero. But uh, over the years, I rewrote that book a couple of times and eventually the character became uh, a, a guy uh, mm-hmm. who was gay yeah, he was in graduate school. And, you know, I kept the setting, most of the minor characters from the, the, the original, but I put it into the, third, into the first person and it became Andy's story. And um, that book finally sold in 2005 to a mm-hmm. small press who would originally published my first two mysteries, um, which were newer books that I had written, um, they were uh, a little small press in East Tennessee in Johnson City. Uh, they were mountain press. They were looking to start publishing some uh, Southern mysteries. And a really good friend of mine, Deborah Adams, who wrote the Jesus Creek series um, uh, for Valentine, uh, was working with them. And she said, don't you have something in the, in the drawer? I said, well, yes, I did." <laughs> so it was the sequel that I had written to that first book. Uh, which still had the main, the female main character. And so uh, they liked it and they published that. And then I wrote a brand new book with another uh, female character, this time an older woman, because I love my Miss Markle type sleuths. Mm-hmm. And they published those too. And then in the meantime, Jean uh, and I had been doing work on killer books and I was working on the paranormal mysteries because... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was one of those kids who came home to see Dark Shadows after school, you know, <laughs> and though it scared me to death sometimes. Looking back, you know, you can see how cheesy it was, but at the time, it was like, oh, this is Great. so creepy. Uh, but I did fascinated with vampires and stuff, and I had sent uh, what became Death by Dissertation, that Andy story, to Natalie Rosenstein at Berkeley, Thinking, okay, maybe this is finally my entree into you know, publishing novels. And then Natalie read it and she said, you know, it's I really like the character and you do the academic atmosphere really well. She said, but there's just nothing that stands out in today's market about this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was crushed, but I started thinking, I said, like, well, I can see your point. And then, you know, I, was, I had been reading P. and L. Rod's series about the reporter in Depression-era Chicago, who woke up one morning and found himself dead uh, as a vampire. And I thought, well, you know, I can, I can think of something different, a cozy vampire mystery. And within, you know, a few minutes, the first two lines of the book came to me. The vicar doesn't know I'm a vampire, nor does he know I'm gay. <laughs> and so I had to write that book to figure out who was talking to me. And um, that was wow. the Simon Kirby Jones series. And I sold those to Kensington to John Sconavillia. Oh, wow. And they published four of them. Unfortunately, they didn't. I was a little ahead of the wave on the vampire thing, yeah. And so they didn't quite take off. But in the meantime, uh, I had come up with another idea. Uh, uh, I wanted to write a series about two older sisters in Houston who are wealthy. And my idea was to have them. You know, be patrons of the arts, and you know there'd be a movie involving the opera, and a movie involving the art world, and you know various things. And I sent a few chapters uh, and a synopsis to my agent. And again, you know, she liked it. She said, and she said we might be able to sell this. She says, but it's just, you know, it needs a little more. She said, but what is this fascination with rich people that writers seem to have? She she said, why hasn't somebody written a trailer park detective? And that was when I was working full-time at the bookstore. And I was, you know, I was so disappointed because, you know, I really wanted to write about those characters. But on the way home, I started to think about that trailer park character. And by the time I got home that day, I had, a, the, from my ride home, I had the character and I had the basic scenario in mind. You know, a woman who lives in a trailer park with her kids and works two jobs to support them. You know, finds her ex-husband, her cheating ex-husband, dead in the woods behind the trailer park with one of her long flamingos through his neck. (laughs) And that became Flamingo Fatal. And that was uh, Wanda Nell Culpepper, And I wrote five books in that series. And unfortunately, you know, they didn't take off either. In the meantime, I wrote two books about three women who played Bridge. Those uh, didn't take off either. But along the way with those Trailer Part books, uh, Natalie turned me over to Michelle Vega. Mm-hmm. Her book, Michelle was her assistant, and then Michelle became my editor. And, uh, when, and Michelle was as disappointed as I was when they had to say no to more Trailer Part books. But a little, you know, not long after that, she and Natalie came back to me. and they, Because they liked my writing, they liked working with me, and they said, you know, we want you to keep working with us. And we thought, because they knew I was a librarian and that I had cats and said, they said, we want you to write a book about a librarian and a cat. Because Berkeley had published that book, you know, Dewey the Library Cat.
0: which Mm -hmm. was very
1: popular, which I've never read because I didn't want it to be influenced me. I thought, well, you know, I could do that. I'm a librarian. I have cats. So I wrote um, a few chapters of um, the book and the, the main character was Caroline at that point. Caroline and Diesel. And I sent it and Michelle said, you know, it's just not quite there. And she said, why don't you make Caroline a man? And I said, okay. So I, Caroline became Charlie mm-hmm. and it worked. <laughs> Michelle said, this is it, you know. You. let's write this book It gave me a you know a three-book contract as Berkeley used to, as did in those days and so I was off on this on the series and it just clicked and I remember uh, the, book, the book came out in August of 2010 almost 12 years ago and I was visiting a friend who was in the nursing home and he happened to be in a double room but he didn't have a roommate And my back was bothering me, and it was after work. And I I thought, I'm going to stretch out on this bed and rest my back for a second. And my phone rang, and I looked at it, and it was a 212 number. And I'm thinking, okay, who do I know in New York? So I answered it. hello, hi, Dean, this is Michelle. I've got some news for you. And I couldn't imagine what it was. She says, you've made the New York Times extended bestseller list. Wow. With that very first book. And that was back when, wow. you know, they used to do mass market paperbacks and stuff. And I, I remember, I think I said, oh, my God, oh, my God. I don't know how many times, you know, for <laughs> Michelle, you know, before I, I, yeah. I could take it in. And, you know, I just couldn't believe it. I, you know, it's the dream we all have. Mm-hmm. And it had happened. Um, and, you know, the next, when the next book came out, I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, fluke, it's not going to happen again. But it did. I mean, the first five books in the series all made the New York Times list. And the fifth one debuted at number eight. Wow. And that one also debuted at number two on the Barnes & Noble uh, in-store bestseller list. You know? Mm. So I just, you know, it was over the moon. Once they went to hardback, you know, that was the end of being a bestseller. Although a couple of them did make the USA Today list, which is no mean achievement. But, you know, it's like between you know 1985 and 20 and 2010 was 25 years and this like, mm-hmm. yeah I, I finally became an overnight success <laughs> <laughs> you know and you know uh like my, like so many writers I do have that sense of being an imposter that you know at some point somebody's going to discover I'm not really I can't I don't really know what I'm doing so they're going to stop reading my books but uh You know, fortunately, God, I love my fans because they have been so incredibly loyal and they keep spreading the word. Mm -hmm. So it was a long and, you know, very gratifying, eventually, apprenticeship. And finally, you know, I did something right. I found the magical combination for me, you know, and God bless Michelle and Natalie for suggesting it to me. Because I don't know that I would have come up with the exact recipe on my own. And I have to say, give props to Michelle, because she is truly an editor. She reads the books, and she edits them. And mm-hmm. you know, if, and she is not invested in the characters as I am. and she because in one book, uh, I was uh, close to the end, and I had Charlie do something which I didn't think was right, but I really wanted to finish the book and get it time. <laughs> So yes, readers, we do do that every once in a while. But my editor said, no, Charlie would not do this. This is wrong. And then by that time, I'd had enough time to think about it and I realized she was right. And so that I wrote the ending as it should have been, you know. But she's got my back. Yeah. And, yeah. and she tells me when things work and when they don't. And she tells me if the line editor doesn't understand something, that I can ignore it. Mm-hmm. Because... I mean, the copy editors have been great. Berkeley has some great copy editors, but most of them have never lived in the South, <laughs> you know? and they do not understand some Southern expressions. So I occasionally have to explain them to them, but uh, but otherwise, you know, it's it's been a great process. And I mean, I if. Uh, Michelle can't retire until after I do. That's all there
0: is. To <laughs> I think a lot of people hope she doesn't yeah, retire. Yeah, for good She long has
1: time. really built up a great uh, cadre of writers. She really is so wonderful.
0: I love hearing your story because you are talking about your your process as a writer, but you're also talking about the having to adjust when the business changes or doesn't work the way you want to and it's it's hard i mean when you know um when that that trailer park series which sounds fabulous you know they don't want another book that's not a that's not a a simple moment that's a you know okay um how do you how do you well you know i mean you also worked in the book business (laughs) but for people to who are hearing this uh, what what advice would you give them about sort of navigating these these journeys? Because it is very challenging. And as you said, a lot of people drop out, you know, when, when that, you know, some people would have dropped out when their trailer park series got, got, didn't get renewed.
1: Well, my mother, who passed away um, in December 2001, was probably the most stubborn creature God ever created. <laughs> <laughs> she was a depression era baby. And... She went through a lot of hard times and she managed to get through them and stuck them out and everything and, and stuff. And I think, you know, she passed along some of that stubbornness to me. Like mm-hmm. you, you can't tell me that I can't do this, you know, even though sometimes I don't think I can. I, you know, I, I usually can't. But I just thought, well, you know, uh, I'll come up with something else because mm-hmm. I really, really wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm on the verge of being able to write full time, which is really exciting. Uh, and uh, so I just, I, I, part of it, I guess, was being at the bookstore for so long. I saw the cycles in publishing and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and things. And so, um, and I also have an agent, uh, Nancy Yost, uh, at the Nancy Yost Literary Agency. Nancy was an editor for a long time before she mm-hmm. became uh, an agent. And Nancy knows both sides of business and she's very savvy about the market trends and stuff. And she's always been very honest with me. And she knows she can be because I have that experience as a bookseller. So I, you know, she doesn't have to explain things to me. You know, she says, Mm -hmm. this isn't commercial. I I say, okay, I agree. I understand. And then we move on. Mm -hmm. So I've been very lucky in that regard to have an agent who really understands the business and doesn't give me false hope. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that I think is part of it, but part of it is just, you have to be willing to reinvent yourself. Mm-hmm. If you really want to write and you write what means something to you, you know, yeah, I would love to be up there with Harla, my friend Harlan Coben and Jeff Abbott and people like that who sell, you know, are best-selling thriller writers who make way more money than I do and ever will, but You know, that's just not me.
0: Right. You know,
1: I just, I mean, I feel like I can write other things, but, you know, I just don't have the mindset to write the kind of books they write. And, you know, Mm -hmm. kudos to them because they're extremely good at what they do. And I've known them since before they were who they are. Mm -hmm. Um, But you have to be willing to reinvent yourself and write what means, as I said, what means something to you. You know, Don't try to write just because you know, you think you could be the next James Patterson. Right. Yeah, that job is filled. Yeah, it's never going to be open. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to be writing years after he's dead. You know, yeah. Just like some of these other people. But, you know, write, you know, what means something to you? What makes you passionate? What mm-hmm. engages you when you read? What do you pick up to read? You know, if, you, if the only thing you read is nonfiction, then that maybe that's what you need to write. You know, I mean, I like to read nonfiction. I just finished a book on, uh, you know, the evolution of mammals by a young American mm-hmm. scholar who's a brilliant science writer. But that fascinates me. It's kind of, that won't have anything to do with one of my books, you know, but you need to read other things. You know, read the good people, read the bad people and learn to tell the difference. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't get the difference between Michael Conley and James Patterson, then you need to go back to the table
0: want to tell people you know yeah Also, yeah, so I I do um I resonate with the you need to love your genre you can write to the market but you really need to you can't fake it no. <clears throat> if you don't love romance but you know romance is selling you you know that not loving it will show in your writing yeah. I think Um, So you love your genre that you write in as well.
1: Oh, very much. Very much. You know, I love, uh, I don't read as many cozies as I used to, Mm -hmm. just for various reasons, because I don't want to end up uh, sounding like anybody or anything. So I tend to read uh, more historical histories these days, Mm -hmm. um, which I love. And I would dearly love to do a medieval series, you know, because i got the background for it. But it also takes a lot of research because you have to get all the kinds of details right. Sharon Newman, who's a very dear friend who wrote a very wonderful series set in uh, 12th century France, um, you know, is very meticulous about the day-to-day details.
0: Mm-hmm. And in fact,
1: in one book, her character's up in the middle of the night in a castle and needs to go to the privy. And Sharon started wondering, okay, well, what would she use after she was through to clean herself? And fortunately, she knew the person to ask. (laughs) And so she emailed this person and said, okay, what would she use to clean herself? And the expert said, well, when and where? And Sharon told her, you know, northeastern France in the mid-12th century. And the answer came back, moss. You know, and it's not that Sharon necessarily needed to include that in the book, but it's one of those little details that makes things authentic, you know? Like what they ate and, and the clothes they wore, you know, and stuff like that. And uh, I mean, I know the, broad, the outlines of the social and legal history of medieval England, but exactly what people wore in 1253 or 1077, you know, it varies a lot. And you really and there are people who are going to know. And if you get it wrong, you're going to hear from them. That's right.
0: Yeah, yeah. So. no, historical mystery readers will call you out oh, yeah. if you don't get yeah. all those details yeah. right yeah so.
1: and i and i love you know regency romances georgia hayer is one of my all-time favorite writers and um, and i've also read a lot of other regencies um of the so-called sweet ones you know they were what the category ones for so many years and uh and i belonged for a long time to a regency group on yahoo and let me tell you those ladies knew their stuff and they would take apart writers who made mistakes especially with the peerage you know and um, you know I I, and I've learned too and just from studying English history and stuff that you know a daughter is not going to inherit and become the 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 countess of something just because her daddy she was the only child I mean you know stuff like that and it's amazing because I don't think today's editors of these books really know that Mm -hmm. as well as they should to edit these books and so i tend to avoid a lot of them. and i avoid medieval romances on on principle because i've read several that were just uh, you know the days of roberta gillis who was you know the epitome of how to write medieval historical romance you know is gone so i think i've wandered way away from the point of the question
0: (laughs) no 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 i mean i this is great this is all great because you know i i i Fascinating. I'm also. I was going to ask if having a PhD in history and being a mystery writer feels like it could be a a match, but maybe that's another another project at another another. Yeah, time. I mean, I
1: had an idea uh, for the longest time for um, a Regency set uh, mystery romance, and I've got some of the background materials I need to do it, but you know, finding time with working full time and Being under contract doesn't leave you a lot of extra time, you know, so.
0: How many books a year do you write?
1: Well, for a while, I was doing two a year, but that has slowed Mm -hmm. down because I just couldn't keep up with that pace. And unfortunately, uh, the book that comes out in July 2023 should have been out uh, this spring. But dude, I lost two very good friends last year. Neither went to COVID, ironically enough, but one in February and one in October and just the general melees of of the pandemic and stuff. I just, I thought it wasn't going to affect me because Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of a hermit anyway. When I get home, I stay home most of the time, except for going to the grocery store and occasionally meeting a friend for lunch. But it really, you know, it really got me. And I just did not feel creative. I, you know, I didn't, Trust my judgment. And I'm just now beginning to come out of it, and I've got to finish this book so it can come out next year and not be further delayed. And I so appreciate Michelle and uh, Berkeley Penguin Random House for being uh, understanding. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. also the uh, the whole issue with paper, which is another thing, which is causing, you know, um,
0: huge delays,
1: huge delays and things. So that kind of helped me but you know i really got to get this done because after this book i still got two more books under contract to write you know so
0: so the july 2023 book will be 15 so 16 and 17 are under contract yeah yeah. and you write those as miranda james um talk to me about that about the pseudonym
1: well uh you know i've used a pseudonym ever since i I wrote the Trailer part books Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you, if you Google my name, Dean James, you get a whole bunch of stuff about a dead movie star. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and
1: somewhere buried on the fifth or sixth page, you might find me, you know? And that was a problem, you know? Yeah. So that's when I started using pseudonyms. And in Berkeley, uh, the marketing people, you know, also ass- make the assumption, which is not entirely true, that the readers for my kind of book are women of a certain age, i.e. over 30, you know, and they prefer to read books they think are written by women. I mean, these same people, women write a lot of books written by men, so, you know, but what do I know? But so um, I was okay with doing another pseudonym, but this time I wanted to keep my own last name. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And, but I've always loved the name Miranda ever since I read Shakespeare's play The Tempest. <laughs> and in fact, one of the one of the daughters in the Trevor books is named Miranda. Uh, and so I, I and I thought, well, Miranda James has a nice ring to it.
0: it does uh, it just
1: sort of flows? And so I went with Miranda Jenks. And,
0: and so. Chances are good you're going to be Miranda James for a while. <laughs> I, I <laughs> because so. Miranda no, I James is selling well. Because, <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, you know, I also wrote a spin off series of four books featuring the Southern ladies, who were two uh, sisters uh, who were characters in the, in the Cat and the Max books. And unfortunately, they were just not catching on enough. So, but they, they still appear as characters in the, in the series because uh, they're just too much fun to let go of.
0: So what's your process like um, for, for writing a book? I mean, you did mention, I think that this is also so um, important for people to hear. You work full time, yes. I mean, you're, you're a librarian. It's, yeah. uh, you know, and that's, I think people just assume that, you know, you reach a certain point or your book is on the New York Times bestseller list and that's it, you've got it made. And it's, it, you know, building a career takes a long time. Exactly. Um, exactly. So what's your process like for writing?
1: Well, I always, you know, come up with the basic concept first. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, um, the book that came out last year, "What the Cat Dragged In," uh, I took uh, a little bit of a page out of my own family history, and I thought, what if Charlie finds out that his grandfather's uh, farmhouse, his paternal grandfather's farmhouse, really didn't go out of the family? What if Charlie? finds out he's just inherited it, Uh, you know. And, you know, his grandfather died when he was about five or six years old, and he hasn't seen that house since because his grandfather left it to somebody on a lifetime lease. And when that person died, it came back to the family. So, you know, Charlie goes to investigate, and the house is based very loosely on my great-grandfather's house, which I remember kind of vaguely There from my childhood, because my great-grandfather died long before I was born. But uh, my great-uncle and his family lived in it when I was a little child. But anyway, uh, Charlie takes Diesel, and they go to look around the house. You know, Charlie remembers things. And, you know, it was part of a way. The whole idea was for for me to partly indulge in a little bit of nostalgia for family history and stuff. And, uh, And while they're there, they go up into the attic. And Charlie's looking around and Diesel goes off on his own. And Diesel finds something in an old wardrobe. And Charlie hears this thunk and he goes and looks. And Diesel's sitting there with the skull. And it's a, it's a real human skull. It's not, you know, a toy or anything. And then Charlie looks cabinet, like, and there's a whole bunch of bones in there too. So Charlie's thinking, oh my Lord, did my grandfather murder somebody? You know, what's going on here? And so that's how I start. I come up with a basic premise like that. And then I just sort of, I I start writing. I mean, I, you know, I come up with some of the minor characters who are necessary to this particular story. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, they just sort of pop up as I'm writing. I think, okay, I need somebody for this or that or whatever. But, you know, they usually fit well into the story. And, you know, then I write on, you know, to the end. And, you know, I, I don't write every day until I get closer to the end. And then I do write some every day because, you know, my schedule. And plus, you know, I, I sit and stare at a computer screen all day long at work, yeah. you know. And uh, I'm not a reference librarian. I'm a, I'm a behind-the-scenes person. I deal with all the electronic and print resources at the library. And that means a lot of looking at the computer. And mm-hmm. I don't really want to do that when I come home. Mm -hmm. You know, I spend way too much time looking at my phone, as Mm -hmm. we all do, and so I don't, I don't read eBooks, even though I have a bunch, you know, and uh, I just don't want to look at a screen. So, Um, but I've discovered, uh, and this is something I think it's important that most people need to learn, is that your subconscious is going to do work for you.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, as long as you allow. Your brain to think about in some level the book that in between when you sit down and you think you're blocked if you just start writing your subconscious has already figured some things out and it will come to the surface and that is that I I mean that's happened to me with every single book and I the one I'm writing now is like number thirty two or number thirty three you know novels yeah. you know and it yeah. has never it's never really failed me I have. Haunted it and you know not treated it well, you know especially with this current book. But every time I lie down and want to go to sleep, I, you know something is bubbling in my brain. Oh, what if this? What if that? Mm-hmm. You know, this kind of thing for for this book. Yeah. You know? So you know you have to be willing to let those things come through. I used to yeah. think because I would go to write you know to conferences and stuff, and I would go to MWA meetings and talk to people and whatever. And when writers would come to the bookstore, they'd say, well, you know, I just let the characters take over. You know, da, 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 da. my character said this to me. And my dear friend Carolyn Haynes, I mean, her wonderful Bone series started because she heard Judy and Sarah Booth talking in her head.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and darn if they're not right. You know, it's that subconscious, you know, it's telling yeah. you to like, that voice that said, the bicker doesn't know I'm a vampire, nor does he know I'm gay. Yeah. You know, that was yeah. my first aha moment, you know, for that, really. And, you know, it, it happens, but it's your creativity and your subconscious, you know, doing these things for you. The rest of it is just, you know, is very physical sitting down and either writing by longhand, if that's your thing, or typing into the word processor, which is mine. If I had to write a book longhand now, I don't know what I'd do. <laughs> <laughs> know. Okay. You know, but um, i so withed. Or type it. <laughs> yeah, I'm so wedded to yeah. the the word processor. But you know, trust you. You know, trust your subconscious and let your subconscious do its job. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what sets writers apart from you know people who who don't think they can write. You, you've mm-hmm. got to be willing to let that subconscious work and help you. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I say. And I am not a very disciplined person because I would rather do nothing than do something any day of the week. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, if you can discipline yourself just enough to keep that subconscious working and then listen to it and do what you've got to do, you know, then things will come out okay. Uh, Nora Roberts, one time I had heard Nora Roberts speak. She came to the bookstore and one of the people in the audience asked her, what do you do about writer's block? And I'll never forget what she said. Nora said, you know, writing is my job and I sit down and do it every day. Do you think a plumber shows up to do a job and says, oh, I can't do this. I've got plumber's block. (laughs) The woman has a point. I mean, who's going to argue with Nora Roberts?
0: Right. Right. If you don't
1: know who Nora Roberts is, look her up.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Or J.D. Robb. I mean, she's quite the career. Exactly.
1: She's she's amazing. And, yeah, she is. You know, and she's just—I mean—an incredible storyteller.
0: Yeah. You know. So. Yeah. Um, what surprised you most about the publishing journey? I mean, I—I I, let me back up a little bit because you've been sharing sharing information about that. But I love how connected you got to the community mm-hmm. and how you built up relationships and kept, you know. Kept listening to people and growing and developing those relationships. I think sometimes we don't understand how important that is. Um, So that when you sent Natalie, uh, you know, an idea, she, she read the email or the letter or whatever, however you sent it then um, because she, you know, she knew you and, and, and that's part of it. So what, what surprised you about this journey even given everything you knew from having immersed yourself in it since
1: 1985? Well, I mean, um, one thing is the friendships I've made. Mm. You know, over the years, I got to meet so many writers whose books I revered. I mean, like Barbara Merce became a personal friend, you know, and if you tell me that that was going to happen, I would have just said, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Because as a teenager, you know, I mean, yeah, I had a crush on David Cassidy, but I wasn't really into rock stars. You know, I wanted to meet writers. You know, I really wanted to meet Victoria Holt, for example, because I loved her books so much, uh, and Barbara Mertz. But I thought, you know, this is never going to happen. But then, you know, I, I my boss um, at Murder by the Boat, Mark Farrington, uh, sent me to uh, New York in 1988 to the MWA week, and it was also coincided with the Crime Writers International Congress, uh that same week, and Mary Higgins Hart was the presiding figure over the whole thing. I think she was president of NWA. so I got to meet her. I rode um, the bus in from uh, the airport with Dorothy B. Hughes. you know, and I met the first morning at breakfast, these two older-looking English ladies came up and asked if they could join me and my roommate, you know whom I've been assigned by MWA um, You know, can we join you for breakfast? And we said, sure. And then they introduced themselves. Hi, I'm Patricia Moyes. This is my friend, Sarah (laughs) (laughs) Caldwell. You know, and of course, I couldn't understand a word Sarah said because she just, she had an incomprehensible accent. But Penny, as people called her, was delightful. And of course, I loved her books. And, you know, I met Carolyn Hart. I met Nancy Descartes, I met Sharon McCrum, uh, Bob Crace. You know, I met so many people that week. And then we started getting people coming to the store. So I met so many people through the store. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I went to a couple of Bachacon's Cons in England. And during one of them, um, the late Sue Fader, who was a huge Ellis Peters fan and created the Ellis Peters Appreciation Society, arranged for several of us to have tea with Ellis Peters. Mm. So I got to meet the creator of Brother Catfail. Mm. And she was amazing. You know, so it was all these experiences. And then... Um, I also found uh, the Elizabeth Peters Appreciation Society and started uh, getting that newsletter and I started uh, corresponding with Mary Mormon, And then she said, hey, look, we're going to, we want to start this con- uh, conference that is devoted to cozy mysteries. And um, she knew I was going to be in New York and Barbara was going to be there. And she said, go up to Barbara and introduce herself and tell her you want to be part of this. And that's when I first met Barbara. Because she was there that week. And actually being involved in Mouth Domestic was one of the greatest things uh, in my life. I was the chair of the Ag of the Awards Committee for the first three years. And so, and I went every year for 17 years without a break. You know, and so I got to meet so many people there. And, and you realize there really is a sense of community. Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, and that's one of the things I miss not being in, in Houston anymore. Is the bookstore and getting to see people who became mm-hmm. good friends, you know, like uh, Jackie Winspear and, and other people, you know, whom we sort of helped discover and uh, whatever. I don't get to see them anymore. But you do realize that there is a bigger community out there and that it, for the most part, they're very, very supportive. There are a few, mm-hmm. if, you, if you want to believe this, you can, but there are some assholes out there. Yes. You know, and off record, I'll tell you who some of them are. But um, you know, but for the most part, in the commu- the writing community is so supportive. I mean, look at Sarah. Yeah. I mean, Sarah is a goddess, so mm-hmm. many ways. And I know I used to embarrass her every time she'd come to Houston, and I would introduce her to the audience because, you know, I, you know, I would I would babble on about her, but because uh, she's just so amazing. But um, but that's and then sisters in crime. You know, has been that. And it's been a wonderful thing. You know, I'm very proud to be a brother in crime, to be involved in some small way. You know, and I've been involved off and on in an MWA, which, you know, does a lot too. But I think Sisters mm-hmm. uh, and Crime has really taken up the slack in areas that MWA hasn't gotten to yet, like the Pride Award, mm-hmm. which I'm very proud of, too. So, but, but there is a community out there, so get involved. You know, yeah. you know, find your MWA chapter or your sisters in crime chapter and get to meet these people, you know, and they can they can help you, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If nothing else, I understand.
1: Well, exactly. Talk, like, <laughs> you're talking to people who don't think you're weird because you want to figure out how to use a certain poison to kill somebody. Yes. <laughs> They're not going <laughs> to <call and> report <laughs> you to the police. Yeah. Most
0: We've talked about Barbara Mertz a couple of times, but, you know, I am a, a huge fan of yeah. hers. And I I've found it interesting to also go back and look at her career and you can see how things happen. Like, you know, I don't know that Amelia Peabody meant to be a series. I mean, it seemed to be a standalone at one point and then she, you know, wrote it, and And so I wish I could have listened to her talk about yeah. this. But um but her career didn't just happen. I mean, she wrote for a long time and has some early books that you could see them feeding into what became, yeah. you know, her more successful series um, as Elizabeth Peters. Yeah. Well, um, so, yeah. And
1: yeah, if you look back really at the history of the genre in some ways, uh, Borrower of the Night, which was the first Vicki Bliss book, was really a book ahead of its time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because you have the statuesque, blonde built heroine who had a PhD in art, medieval art history, you know, and she was nobody's fool, you know, and at the end of the book, she turns out not one, not two, but three men. You know, she walks away from three men who wanted to marry her, you know? And, uh, and I don't think that was necessarily intended to be a series either, but I think Barbara, you know, just found those characters interesting. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, just wanted to go back to, you know, with Amelia. I mean, I don't think, yeah. you know, after a while she just said, I've got to go back, I you know, need to see, you know. And thank God she did, because otherwise we wouldn't have Ramses. I know,
0: I know, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, in that second book uh, where
1: Ramses drops that bone into the old lady's <laughs> house, it's a white house you No, know? I mean, Barbara <laughs> had such an exquisite sense of comedy, you know. Yes but uh, yes. you know, and i'm I'm so glad for her that it happened, I mean, because she deserved yes. that success, but I mean, she worked so hard for it for years, yeah. writing two books yeah. a year, supporting two kids, you know, after a divorce, and you know i mean she she deserved all that success,
0: yeah, she was also generous because oh, yeah. you know when you talked about the um, you know, founding of Malice Domestic and wanting to do this, that's not a small thing to sort of be part of and, and for you to be part of. I yeah. mean, that's that's been a huge part of the community. Well, yes, yeah, exactly. Um, and Barbara
1: underwrote that first, probably the first two or three, you know, guaranteed, yeah. like the hotel bills and that kind of stuff, you know, so it, yeah. she really was a major part of that. It wouldn't happen without her. Yeah,
0: no, it's... Uh, uh, giving back, as you do and as other people do, is also such an important, um, important part of <clears throat> the journey. Yes, um, it is for sure. Is. Yeah. You know, and I'm lucky yeah.
1: enough that I'm in a vantage point where, you know, I have some wisdom of some sort, you know, to share, and I'm happy to share it if it if it helps anybody, you know. But every writer, you know, one thing, you know, you have to learn is that, you know, one size doesn't fit everybody. Right. One size may only fit one person. You know, um, Joan Hess and Sharon McCrom told the story about uh, one time they went to uh, a writers' conference in think uh, either Arizona or New Mexico, which Joan referred to as the home of the earth shoe people. And this one woman got up and she wanted to know what writers eat. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, but what you eat is not going to have any bearing on what you write. <laughs> you know, but you know, I've seen it myself, in you know, over. 35 years or more of going to uh, writer's things that people tend to think that you're published and so you know that one little key that's going to make it happen. And I'm sorry there isn't one little thing that's just going to make everything turn around for you. You know, I mean, you just have to persevere. And if Project A doesn't sell, then think about Project B and C and D and E and F and G and H. You know, Mm -hmm. because if, you know, if you're Determined to be a writer, you have to keep learning and you have to learn to realize what's wrong with Project A because it didn't sell. Yep. You know, and listen to people. You know, and don't ask your grandmother and your cousin Fred to be your critics because right. unless they hate you, they're not going to tell you the truth. <laughs> right.
0: You know, right.
1: You know, you need to right. find that community. You know, writer's groups are not for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I was part of a very good writer's group in Houston. And I tried to stay in it after I moved, but it just technically just wasn't working. But they were great people and they helped me uncover some of my weaknesses. And I learned how to avoid those. And also, when I go back and read through things, I can catch those things and correct them. Mm-hmm. You know, and so mm-hmm. that really helped me sharpen things up. So, you know, find, if you can, find a good critique group. But, you know, but beware, there are always toxic people working in those. If you're yes. not careful, and we had to get rid of one in our um, writers group, you
0: know?
1: and uh, and it, it's painful sometimes, but you just have to cut them out.
0: Yeah, it's very important yeah. to to understand that too. That some people aren't actually looking out for your best interest. No,
1: no, they they just yeah. they they love you know criticizing you.
0: Yeah. not usually from a place of knowledge either yeah yeah Yeah. well i could talk to you all day but what a tremendous conversation and um i'm going to put some links to some of these other books and series in the show notes so that people can find them um but thank you so much for being a member of Sisters in Crown, for all you do. And uh, thanks for a great and very encouraging conversation.
1: Well, thank you, Julie. I, I, I love doing it. And you know, if I can help anybody in any way, I, you know, I hope some of the things I've said will help people.
0: I, I know it will. I know it will. So thank you so much, Dean.
1: And it's good to finally meet you.
0: It's nice to meet you, too. I know. <laughs> One of these days, it's, hopefully um, in
1: person again.
0: I know 3D would be nice, but, and I also appreciate you talking about the trauma of the past couple of years. I think that we're not talking about that enough. Um, And in the arts, you know, I spent my my long career working in the performing arts, especially in theater. Mm -hmm. And, You know, everyone just thinks they're going to get back to it, and and we need to acknowledge what what it's what's happened in the last couple of Um, years—not just normal life, but also um, this pandemic. And so, uh, thank you for acknowledging that as well.
1: Yeah, and and we need the
0: arts. Yes. Yes. Now more than ever. I mean, a luxury. No. No. Yes. (laughs) No. No the arts are a necessity. Um, Well, thank you again, and it was wonderful to meet you.
1: You too, Julie. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.